All right, ladies and gentlemen, here it is, the grand finale of the Longbox Heroes Patreon show, Piero Mounties, a little bit of a pun there, Todd and Joe here, but we are being joined by the writer, director, actor, Grand Poobah behind all these movies that we watched all year, and that is Mark Piero himself. Mr. Piero, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Happy to be here, guys. Awesome. So, uh, we're going to get right into it. Um, I am a big, um, you know, when you get horror movies, you kind of get into a low-budget fandom, and I've seen so much stuff. And Todd, about a year ago, introduced me to Polish Vampire in Burbank, a movie I had never seen before. We did a whole thing last year where it was like, oh, movies that either one of us had never seen. Todd introduces me to this movie. And I saw it, and I was blown away. I loved it. I was rolling on the floor laughing, and I was shocked at, that I had lived my life this long with never have seen, seen this movie. Wow. Where does this inspiration come from? It's your first, like, full-length theatrical film. You get a name actor in it for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, wouldn't, I don't know if we'd call him a name actor, but... <laughs> semi-recognizable at the time, I guess. So how does that come to be? Like from, you know, the germ of the idea to rolling that first Super 8, you know? Right. Well, I I made a lot of short films prior to that, and it was around the time when I thought, you know, let's try and do a feature film. So a mutual friend of Eddie Deason introduced me to him, and said, you know, Eddie's never really starred in anything. He's always had a supporting role um, or a you know, little featured bit. But this was going to be his starring role. So I said, you know, great, let's do it. And he was happy to do it. And once we got underway, he understood that this wasn't exactly like a Spielberg film. So he wasn't going to get his dressing rooms or uh, catered, <laughs> you know, catered meals or limousine service and and so about a month or so into production, he decided didn't want to do it anymore. Um, so at that point, it was, well, either we fold the production or I figure out a way to work around it. And we ended up um, rewriting the story uh, in a way that I could utilize what we shot with him, or at least most of what we shot with him. And then I jumped into the role just to finish it out, and I kind of rewrote it as we went along. Long, and then I ended up becoming the star and his character sort of became secondary. And then we uh, it started resembling American Werewolf in London, where the main character comes back as a corpse, as a rotting corpse. And I thought, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll change the title because originally the title was called Virgin Vampire. That was going to be the movie. And then when he ended up leaving the film, I turned it into a Polish vampire in Burbank because we made a lot of Polish joke references in there, and his name was Dupa, which is a Polish word. And so um, that's kind of how that came about. And then, you know, we shot it over a period of, I think, two years, um, utilizing some of the people that I had met when I was a tour guide at Universal Studios, and uh, ended up just kind of piecing it together little by little. We never thought it was going to sell. Uh, it, it was made as basically a showcase. Let's show everybody we can make a movie, and once we were finished with it, we actually picked up a distributor that said, let's not tell anybody that you shot this for $2,500. You know, let's <laughs> just um, push it like a regular movie. 
He took it to the Cannes Film Festival. He ran it there. He took it to other film uh, festivals and made some sales. So nobody was more shocked than than I was when this whole thing started selling. That's kind of it. Yeah, and I totally understand the Dupa reference because I grew up, I'm from the Polish section of my town. So when I saw it, I thought that was hysterical. Um, I saw it when I was very, very young. I remember it appearing on either USA Up All Night where I saw it first or there was a Captain Commander USA thing. Right. On, and I remember seeing it, uh, probably way too young to, to see it, but I saw it and I absolutely uh, fell in love with it. So what's the road? For, was that the thing that kickstarted like into like a cult thing or was it before that? I think that helped. I mean, it, it sold on home video first. It was on the home video market and it did fairly well when it first came out because it was one of the very first movies made directly for home video. Home video was kind of new. Right. So when when home video came out, they were trying to grab whatever they could. And a lot of studios didn't want to give up their movies for home video because they were afraid of piracy and all that. And they were very expensive. So you might find older movies like Charlie Chaplin films or or, you know, early Clark Gable movies. And it was just a hard thing to get a lot of movies on home video. Um, anyway, so here we have this movie brand new, never seen before. And uh, so they promoted it as a brand new movie for home video, and that started it. And then that led to um, the USA Network sale. That was another separate deal. And they bought it for a couple of years, put it on their Up All Night, and they put it on um, Commander USA, which was a daytime version of the same thing. But the movie was heavily edited when it, when it hit uh, USA Network because there were so many things that we put in the movie that we didn't get proper clearance for and they weren't going to run it with a lot of those things like we had a Sonny and Cher number in it that we didn't have uh, the legal rights to use we had I think a clip of the Three Stooges um, we used Universal Studios tour Castle Dracula without any kind of uh, permission we uh, I forget there were so many things and they had a laundry list of things that we're just going to have to cut out I think the movie itself ran about 60 minutes when it aired on cool. USA Network. But they filled a two-hour time slot, so you can imagine there were a lot of commercials in there. In fact, I think the USA version is up on YouTube. I think I've seen it there, um, you know, with all the commercials intact and everything. I think it has, like, the Captain Commander, Captain USA bits in there as well. It's just right. like, yeah, somebody recorded off their TV. But you don't, you mentioned the, the castle uh, that you guys used from Universal Studios. You mentioned being... Uh, Universal Tour Guide. Uh, so many people in Hollywood, movies behind the screen, in front of the screen, were Universal Tour Guides. Any cool stories, anyone that you met there that you saw and you're like, ooh, you know, that guy's going to go on to be something big or this girl thinks she's going to be the next big thing and yeah. uh, I see where her path is going, you know? <laughs> right. Well, it's funny because a lot of the tour guides were celebrities' kids. Uh, okay. Like, uh, I did a, a, a movie before Polish Vampire. It was a short James Bond parody called The Spy Who Did It Better. And uh, we did that uh, about a year or two before Polish Vampire. Ran about 45 minutes. And one of the actors in there was Eric Douglas, who is Kirk Douglas's youngest son, who has since passed on as well. And he actually, um, you know, I met him as a tour guide. Uh, um, there was Stacy Webb, who was a tour guide. She was Jack Webb's daughter. Um, Gregory Peck's kids 
uh, Tony and I think Celia, they were tour guides. So a lot of times, um, actually, Danny Thomas's niece was a tour guide. Now, as far as anybody that started as tour guides and then went on to something, there were a couple. I think there was one. I can't think of his name. Brian something or other. He ended up accidentally shooting himself on the set. Ooh. Some um, He was a model-looking character. Brian, Tom's, Brian something green. Um, you can probably Google it and figure out, fill in the gaps. But he was a tour guide with us way back when. Um, other people that we've met along the way that weren't necessarily tour guides, like John McCafferty, he was a tour guide, and he's been in most of my movies somewhere, either starring in them or he would have a smaller part. Um, I met him as a tour guide. He ended up going on to star in a soap opera for a couple of years on NBC called Texas. And then, uh, oddly enough, his um, he lived in a condo in North Hollywood, and directly above him, Terry Hatcher lived there. So we met her through his living in, in this condo, and we'd play poker, and she'd come down and watch us. And, you know, so... As far as meeting people at Universal that became anything, I can't really say there were too many of those. Right. So we had John McCafferty on our list. John's been in pretty much all of your stuff, as you mentioned, right. feature roles or everything else like that. You said how you mentioned them. We talked about how we watch all these movies, and we made reference when we just recorded uh, The Deceased Won't Desist the other day that we get to see John evolve over, like, 35 years of these movies from yeah. the dashing leading man to the distinguished distinguished looking guy that he is as the lawyer in your most recent film. Right. Uh, and obviously John's great to work with if he's in all your stuff. Um, you know, anytime he pops up in something, we look at it and he shows up. It's like such a treat. Any other good stories about John or anyone else that's like a recurring person that you met from the original days? I know we're going to get into you know, like kind of maybe the back half where we see a lot of people pop up more often. But like John's been there from day one. Yeah, John actually started with me on my very first short film, which is uh, called Buns. Uh, and that runs like about 20 minutes. It's about a guy that goes into a murderous frenzy whenever he sees a hamburger. <laughs> uh, sort of like this hamburger serial killer. And in fact, I think there are clips from that up on YouTube as well. And it's also on the uh, Death Row Game Show Blu-ray. That's an ad added feature. Both both of my short films, Buns and Spy, we did it better. But anyway, John uh, did a cameo in that film. Uh, I had met him, like I say, as a tour guide, and he was trying to you know get roles in movies. So I put this little thing together. It's like a three hundred dollar movie. We put it together in a matter of a couple of months. Then when I decided I wanted to do the James Bond parody, the Spy Who Did It Better. We put John in as the spy. So now he's playing this Sean Connery, James Bond type of uh, character. And we, you know, we, we uh, it, it was sort of a parody, but it was also my attempt to make a James Bond movie for like a thousand dollars. So, you know, uh, we've got a scene where they're on a, he's on a high speed jet skateboard down the streets of Las Vegas. And we're going down old Las Vegas back then. And, um, and we put him in a shopping cart and, you know, we had him do the whole bits and, you know, and that's a, that's a cute film too. I mean, we really enjoyed making our own version of a James Bond film. Then um, he ended up then going to New York to do this soap opera, Texas. So when I started my first feature, which was Polish vampire, he uh, came to visit while we were shooting and we put him in the jacuzzi scene. If you remember, there's a scene where there's a spy yep. in the jacuzzi. 
he's in the John. full he's in the full tuxedo in the jacuzzi, in the tuxedo right? in the yeah. jacuzzi. and that was basically a kind of an in joke because he's talking about how everybody out there thinks I'm really an actor, but we all know I'm really a spy. And, and so he's making reference to the fact that he's out there trying to be an actor when in fact he's not, he's a spy. Um, so we threw that in during that one quick moment. Um, then after a couple of years, he came back, uh, he left New York, came back here. And uh, that's when we started curse of the queer wolf uh, which he played a one of the queer billies uh, in yep. the Deliverance parody scene, which shows quite a range. I mean, completely <laughs> opposite of anything he's ever done before. While we were working on that film, uh, we were just about wrapping that film up, and then we moved on to Death Row Game Show, which was funded by a company called Crown Pictures. They hired me to put that project together. So we were just about finishing Queer Wolf when we got Death Row Game Show, and of course, John being my standby, I needed somebody that I knew I could rely on, and he was ready to go, so he became the star of that film. Moving on through the years, again, whenever I needed, like, I think Nudist Colony of the Dead, he, he went back to playing a geeky character again. Um, when we did Rectuma, he did a cameo as the same guy he played in Queer Wolf um, with the other guy next to him, which was, uh, they were both priests in this film. Uh, in one moment when he just says, you pull your pants down, boy. That um, Those were the same two actors that were in Queer Wolf. And then um, moving on to um, uh, Celluloid Soul, he did a, a little cameo in an old-time movie. And then um, Rage, of, no, I'm sorry, Rage of Innocence came before Celluloid Soul. That was another starring role for him. Did a great job. It was just, you know, really my first serious film. It was the first movie that wasn't quite a cartoon like all the other ones that I had done. Um, and then, ironically, the last film we did, um, The Deceased Won't Desist, we had COVID. Well, halfway, about a third of the way through the film, John panics, and he doesn't want to finish the movie. Oh. It was the first time I had had an actor bail on me since Polish Vampire. And I, I give him a little bit of a pass, because he didn't. we had to go up to a cabin up north and there were like 10 actors crammed in this cabin. And, you know, he's, he's a senior citizen now. And he started to worry about being cooped up with all these people during the COVID scare. So he, we talked about it. And he said, you know, Mark, I really don't feel comfortable doing this. And uh, I said, well, you know, we got a movie to finish. We shot a third with him. And then I thought, you know, well, wait a minute. I could, I've done this before. Tried to think of my options. I wasn't going to replace him with a plastic skeleton. That wouldn't work for this <laughs> film. So I thought, um, okay, you know what? If I can shoot him in front of a green screen, basically saying, okay, everybody, my job here is done. Good luck to you all. Uh, so I did. The scene where you see him putting on his jacket and leaving, that was all shot after the fact. And then I gave most of his dialogue that was going to continue on to um, the other actress that the only other there's, there's two survivors at the end of the movie, basically, and they fight each other. The two women, um, the girl that ended up being the, the lesbian character, she got most of John's dialogue. She was supposed to die earlier on with the rest of them. And John's character was the only guy left be, between him and the ex-wife. Those two were going to fight it out at the end. And, uh, but because of John bailing on the film, I thought, okay, you know, well, it makes sense. He's the lawyer. He did his job. He started the the tapes, and now he's leaving. 
And then I just gave most of the dialogue and such to her. She ended up surviving to the end of the movie, and that became the new ending. There you have it. That's interesting because that's the movie that we watched last, obviously, because we went chronological order and I was watching it. I always wondered because that one kind of seemed like it was a mix of like Saw and the movie Clue and like a murder mystery, which is which is what it is. But I always felt like that there was something weird at the end. Was the killer always the killer? Because now that you're saying that John was going to the end did you have to shuffle the deck chairs even more than that or was it pretty much the script you know it was who it was the whole time uh, no spoilers you know right that's yeah right saying. well it was it was always the killer the one that you that's revealed at the end okay. um was always the killer the the only difference was is that when the two women are fighting at the end they both suspect each other and and one of them says you know you're in, you're the one that's doing this and you know how, how can i be the one that's doing this and, and they end up basically killing each other um that was supposed to be john and the ex-wife it wasn't supposed to be the lesbian gal okay. she was she was going to die early on so that's really the only difference i just gave more of the part to her so all the dialogue when they're sitting on the on the couch and they say let's just watch out for each other and make sure that we take care of each other until morning um and there's three girls that are sitting on the couch it was just supposed to be two girls and the lawyer he was going to make it to the end so that was that was the major change so i you know we're we're going to be all over the place we're talking about uh the the uh deceased won't desist the special effects in this, and obviously we're going to talk about the special effects that you've done in a lot of the movies, since you lean heavy, a lot of horror stuff, you mentioned Rage of Innocence being like your first one that, as you said, wasn't a cartoon. Um, when you started to do the special effects, especially now in more of a digital age, versus, let's say, Nudist Colony of the Dead, there's a special effect in that movie, and I, I'm, I'm more of a horror movie guy, so when I see a special effect like that, the guy who's running... And, like, his body just gets, the head comes off and the body keeps going, right? right. I must have sat there and watched that scene frame by frame and thinking to myself, how the hell did they do that? I was blown away. And sometimes with special effects like that, it's, like, the easiest thing. So is it, was it, was it, obviously it was different. Like, what aspect of it did you enjoy, like, back then where you had to rely completely on practical or nowadays where you could do the practical and the digital together? Well, you know, it's it's apples and oranges. I mean, it was interesting when things were a lot tougher that you had to create, you know, uh, practically. Um, now digital makes it a little easier if you have the skill or you have the, you know, the ability to do what you need to do. Um, I think in a lot of cases, there were things that I wish we had back in the day um, especially like when we did Polish Vampire. I mean, I wish we had the technology to use digital skeletons instead of, you know, the, a little plastic skeleton head that you could buy in a model shop and a coat hanger with, uh, I don't even remember, we just put crap on it, but it's obviously a coat hanger with the head. Um, so I would have loved to have had the technology then. Of course, we would, it would have been a whole different deal. And nowadays, you know, you can do so many things that way. The effect that we did that you were referring to Sometimes the magician's tricks are the easiest to, you know, to, once you find out the trick. And if you watch that film very carefully, you'll notice that when you see him running, you don't see his feet. You see his legs. Mm -hmm. it, was controlled out, it was controlled out of frame. We were, you know, we were working the legs like this as they were running. And <laughs> just like two sticks in there. 
And then when the, when he falls over, that's just a separate cut of you know another thing. And then I think we show the shot of his feet when they're already on the ground, which was just done having the actor, you know, the the top half of the actor out of frame. But yeah, you you have to come out with these innovative sort of ways to get things done. And and in a movie like Nudist Colony of the Dead, you can get away with a lot of cheap stuff because you know it's a. I think people are more forgiving for a movie like that than they might be today because now everybody's you know got their eye on oh I know how they did that and whatever so things things have changed quite a bit like uh I was going to say in uh deceased don't desist the character and again you know just going to pretend people are going to watch these hopefully not be spoiled the character who burns up in the car there's right. a lot of digital but there's a practical effect there's a physical head in there and mm. I I watch a lot of stuff. I watch a lot of newer stuff. I watch a lot of stuff that's been made in the last 10 years when it comes to horror movies, when it comes to pretty much anything. And I know you're probably not working with a huge budget, and you see these movies that are on, like, Netflix, and you hear of million-dollar budgets, even $2 million budgets. And the stuff that you did in that movie looks like head and shoulders over stuff that I've seen in what are supposed to be these, like, higher-end low-budget mm-hmm. movies. And again, I'll name one, like Terrifier. Okay, I don't know if you're... if you saw Terrifier, especially the sequels, like this big success. Yeah, I think I missed that one. But it's uh, the killer clown thing, like I forget what the clown's name is, but there's effects... there's one big effect in the first movie that's unbelievable. It'll knock your socks off if you're a horror person, but all the other effects in it are like kind of like, uh, little uh, guys, you know what I mean? Like, I really think someone who's been at it, like, as long as you've been, you know, what, 40 years that you've been making films, to see it go from Super 8 to digital, I think you really have a lot that you can impart. Like, even filmmakers today can watch your stuff. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought of, like, doing, like, a book or a course or how-to things Um, or anything like that? Yeah, I've done all those. I I wrote a book. um, Maybe thirty years ago, it's called uh, what is it even called? Ultra low budget movie making. Okay. It was out for a while. It was it was um, well, I guess back in the days when it wasn't really self published, but I had a distributor that got it into some libraries and got it into some places. Sure. Uh, Amazon might even still be selling it. I don't know, but it's kind of outdated today because it was before digital filmmaking. So. It really talked about the practicality of shooting on a low medium like Super 8 or 16. And um, the principle of making movies is still the same. I, I really get into um, how you need to get people on your team that are going to support what you're doing because there's always a flake here and there that's going to be there for a while and then back off. So the book kind of went into that. I also I used to talk at colleges. I talked at UCLA. I talked at um, Calabasas School. I, I mean, I used to make the rounds and do that. And I, as I got older, I started feeling more like one of these old codgers saying, oh, you damn kids today don't know what it's like to make a movie with your damn CDs and DVDs. <laughs> we used to have to put pieces of film together. And sometimes we had to use scotch tape to put those damn things together, you know, so... Um, but I, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm t- always toying with the idea of maybe putting a seminar together and, you know, just basically doing one of these things for young filmmakers. And, of course, a lot of times today, filmmakers know more than I did, you know, because they've got the technology at their fingertips. It's it's almost impossible to make a bad looking film today because you've got these, uh, you know, you could shoot a movie with your iPhone and it'll look pretty decent if you know how to light a set. And even if you don't, you know, but 
when we were doing our films in Super 8, sometimes we would struggle just to get an exposure. Uh, that was especially the case with Nudist Colony of the Dead. There's a lot of shots in there that are either underexposed or underfocused, and you know we because you you can't see it immediately. You know you you'd have to wait a week to see what you shot, and then if it's bad, you either have to figure out if you're going to get your actors again and go back and fix it, or live with what you got. You know, so there was always that issue with the old days. I'd never shoot another Super 8. I don't even know why people still do it today. I think some people are still doing it because it's like. You know, I don't know, new or, or it's retro. I don't know. But um, I mean, you can take a digital image and make it look like you shot it on Super 8 if you wanted to. You know, so there's uh, I've really in my later years, I tried to get more visual and try to get the vision, you know, the, the, the optics better. Um, I uh, my friend Craig Bassick, who goes all the way back to Polish Vampire with me as he was the DP on that film. He was also the director of photography on uh Death Row Game Show, Nudist Colony of the Dead, and uh, he did some of the visual effects. He's he's kind of into visual effects now, and he did that effect of the um, the head burning in the car. That was a um, that was a practical mold that he made of the actor's face, you know. And, and he, he created this this thing that we put in the car and used that. He also did some of the. Um, uh, there's a scene where the guy's getting his eyes gouged out. Yep. Or, uh, With the eye drops. Right. Uh, he did a lot of those effects. He uh, The cracking of the mirror. We couldn't really crack a mirror. We shot that in John McCafferty's bathroom. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't take too kindly to that. So so the whole cracking of the mirror effect was Craig's doing. Um, I also have a friend uh, named Glenn Campbell that's been involved with me from the early days. We were tour guides together. He is now a visual effects supervisor at Asylum Films. So um, all the Sharknado movies, he did the visual okay. effects. Okay, yeah, sure. In fact, he hired me to work on the last two because they the budget ex, you know escalated and they needed more technicians to do some of the uh, you know rotoscoping and all that. So so he had called me and, and Craig, as a matter of fact, in to do. Um, some of the visual effects on those films, but Glenn is always there to help me with mine. So if I need a specific effect that I'm incapable of doing, like when we did the God complex, we had a scene where God's in a control room and he's got all these monitors and he's looking at the world. Um, I didn't have the skill to do that. So Glenn created that environment of God's control room for me and basically said, okay, you know, all you need to do is just replace the images with whatever you want in there. And and uh, he, he taught me. He pretty much taught me how to use After Effects. And you know, and, and so in the later films, most of the effects I can do my own. My own the the car crash effect in Celluloid Soul. He did that. That you know, that was his whole thing. Um, so it's you know, like I say, it, it's a combination of knowing people that have a certain skill and yet they might have their own job where they make money. But whenever I would say, I got a project, you ready to do it. They'll put some time aside and, and do it in many cases without, uh, without pay, you know, because a lot of times there is no budget. Um, you know, my last several films were probably four figures or less, you know, and um, I say that not that I'm proud of that, but it's just uh, so, practical now to make a movie if you have the organization to get people to commit and uh, when we did deceased you know it took about three or four trips up 
to this cabin, which was about an hour and a half away from where most of us live here in, in uh, Los Angeles. And we would have to coordinate with the actors, you know, to get them up there. And sometimes we couldn't get them all, you know, so then we would go up with just a couple of actors. There's a couple of scenes where the old lady is the only one that's not there. And yet we shot her separately. So you'll see some scenes where she's, you know, talking to the rest of the ensemble, but she's by herself sitting in a different chair because she couldn't be there the day that most of them were there. You know, there's a lot of putting it together like a jigsaw puzzle many times. Right, because I remember hearing somewhere during Rage of Innocence, um, I can't remember the young actress's name, but she ended up getting, what was it? She got a part in the Hunger Game movies? Yeah, she got a, She got into the last two, uh, actually the last three. And uh, we were in production when she got the call that she had, you know, that she had gotten Hunger Games. And I started to panic because I thought, well, that's the end of that. She's not coming back. Why would she? But she did. Uh, we waited. I mean, we we continued the movie with doubles while she was gone. She was gone for, I don't know, a few months. And there's a lot of scenes where it's not her. Uh, very many scenes. In fact, if you if you watch it carefully, like when she's being interrogated by the um, she, she's hooked up to a lie detector that uh, the scene that was shot in black and white briefly she's that's not her uh although there's a close-up of her which i borrowed from a different scene where uh, you see one close-up of her face saying you know yes he attacked me or whatever um the scene where she kills the babysitter uh it's sort of like a silhouette of her where she's standing behind the babysitter babysitter moves out of the way and she plunges a knife into her that was all with a double um again anytime you don't physically see her face if you see the back of her head side of her face whatever um, it was a double. The the confrontation scene at the end between McCafferty and her, um, when she's holding his daughter hostage with a knife to her throat, that was a double on his close-up. You know, you see the back of her head. When we cut to her, that was months, months later when she was done with Hunger Games. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when she came back, I actually felt intimidated because... <laughs> You know, here we got this actress who had been, you know, working with the big time uh, directors and probably had all of the amenities that a, a celebrity is going to get. Then she comes back to my little dog in Pony World. And I almost felt like I was embarrassed to say action. And I felt like saying, have you a moment? Um, there were times when I thought, you know, uh, it's almost like. I felt like, uh, you know, a guy that loses a girlfriend to some other guy with a bigger dick. And then she comes back out of pity <laughs> and gives you one final plunge. That's kind of what it felt like, you know. Cause, but she was great because she did come back. She did finish the rest of her stuff. Uh, we even had her in for a day or two of, of voiceover looping and um, thorough, you know, thorough professional. And, and again, I, I thanked her again and again. And she goes, hey, you know, I committed to this project and here I am. So, uh, yeah, she was she was wonderful to work with. In fact, she was probably uh, one of a handful of actresses or actors that I worked with that were, you know, thoroughly professional, always knew the lines, always hit the marks. And that's not easy to do when you're working you know, on, an, on a nothing budget, because sometimes you get what you get, you know, and I've, I've had I've had the range. I've had you know, top notch, the best. And I've had the bottom of the barrel, too, which uh, 
you know, that takes a lot of editing when you get that end of it. Well, I'll say this on Rage of Innocence. I think you did a great job. Uh, Todd and I, um, you know, we're we do a comic book podcast. We'll get into your feelings on the comic book movies here shortly. But we watch some of the TV shows and some of the stuff that's on TV. We watch them and we're like, oh, they left that shot in or that's the <laughs> angle that they're using. Like you could very clearly tell that's like not the right person. And Rage of Innocence, I couldn't tell there was a body double. I got to go back and watch it now to yeah. see if I can pick out those shots, you know? Yeah, um, there, there's a lot of them. But we're talking special effects. I want to talk about Celluloid Soul. The black and white effect to get the lead female into the color world, if you will. It feels as though that's an effect that can go one way or the other. You're either going to nail it or you're going to blow it. And I feel, you mentioned before, you're talking about movies that are made for under five figures, four figures. <laughs> I I think you nailed it in that movie. Like, you cannot see the seams of where, like, the black and white ends and the color begins and vice versa. And obviously, I, I you know, it's, it's movie magic. It's everything else like that. But on such a low budget, I was, like, my socks were knocked off on how great the production did on that. Oh, very cool. Did you see these on Tubi, I'm guessing? Yes. Okay, because I know on the DVDs, we actually have some behind-the-scenes shots that show how those effects were oh. done. Uh, and because um, when we, when we premiered the movie, that was a question that came up in the audience. And, and it wasn't one specific effect. It really depended on what we needed. Like, if she was by herself, it was pretty much green screen. Uh, that was probably the easiest way to get her, and then we could put her in whatever environment we wanted her to be. If there was interaction between she, you know, between her and and the uh, the, the male lead, we would either um, sometimes just have her in gray makeup, and she would literally be gray, you know. And then I would add speckles and scratches on top of that, um, which is one of the things I regret is that we put her in that black wig, which I wish we didn't have to do. Um, uh, that was my next question. Yeah, I really wish we didn't do that. But when we were thinking, okay, <clears throat> you know, if she has brown hair normally, and I thought, okay, if I'm going to have to rotoscope around her head, that's going to be a nightmare. And so we thought, well, let's put her in a black wig and we'll get away with that. And, and, and again, in retrospect, I should have just gotten black hairspray. They have that temporary hairspray we could have used. That would have been the better answer. But um, other times it was rotoscoping, which was literally, if you're unfamiliar with the word, it's tracing around the actor. And you you create a separate layer where she's one layer, the regular footage is the second layer, and then you trace around her so that any movement she makes, you have to follow her with that. And there might be a couple of shots where it, it might have missed, like if you looked at it very carefully, you might see a finger go out of frame color wise or something. Um, but I, I worked on it for a very long time to try and get it as tight you know, as I could. And um, there was like one scene, the, the one of the toughest scenes is when the two of them are walking. Uh, there's a scene where after he comes out of the drugstore and they're walking together outside. Uh, yeah. And like natural light <laughs> and the whole sure. Right. And the way that was done and, there might even be, there might even be on YouTube. There might be one of the effect shots on YouTube. I forget, but we actually did this where the two of them were walking far apart from each other. There was somebody behind her with a green screen, 
So here she is, and there's a green screen directly behind her. Two of them are walking, so now they're in the same world together, right? And then in in the computer later on, I moved her closer to him with her and the green screen. Then I knocked out the green screen so the background was still the same. So the two of them are walking in the same world. You follow me? Yeah. That was one of the scenes I was most proud of because it was one of those things where it's like, okay, this works, you know. And, and at first I tried shooting them separately and that didn't work because it looked like, you know, like the weather woman, you know, the weather man. It just wasn't uh, in sync. So he'd be moving like this. She'd be moving like that. And so I said, the only way this is going to work is, is if they're moving together at the same time. But the only way I could do that is I'd have to separate them, put a green screen behind her, and then I could move her closer later. And that's how that particular shot was done. But there were so many different variations of how we achieved that effect throughout the film. Um, One of my favorite ones is when we actually shot the old time movie. I loved doing those scenes because we, uh, you know, we, we made it look like the movie was shot in the 30s. And one of my actresses from another movie, uh, the girl that played the Jodie Foster character in Rectuma, Jean Black, she happened to have a kitchen that looks like it hadn't been remodeled since the 30s. I mean, that kitchen that is used for that one moment when we're watching an old-time movie. Uh, in fact, she's in the scene. She plays uh, the scene opposite McCafferty in that in that scene. That was her kitchen. And I saw that. And I said, that's the one we're going to use. You know, so... So, you know, you just try to put these things together to try and fulfill a, uh, a fantasy of whatever you're trying to achieve. And sometimes you get lucky and it works, sometimes not so lucky. Yeah. Um, and in that, in Cellular Soul, uh, uh, cellular soul you had uh, like the YouTube video where the guy finds the YouTube video. and He's like, this is who it is. And in that, like the thing that I love about your movies, we talked about, and I mean this with respect, the ridiculousness of it. Like you say, you're doing a cartoon, you're doing this, you're doing that. And then you'll have this scene. And in, in all honesty, that scene, like I thought was very touching. And that's the thing that I love about your, your style. And in other movies, it happens too. It's like you have this, and then you end on her just doing the voiceover of that scene that in your like goofy, <coughs> fun movies, you have heart. And I believe a very good writing and also in um, uh, Rage of Innocence, like the voiceover at the end, you find out who it really was tell, like talking about how, you know, his parents have got over things. Right. Um, like, do you try to balance that or is that just something that comes later or like, wh- how do you go into something like that? That's a good question. In in both of those cases, I'm not even sure if the narration was really part of the script. I think that might have been something that I did later. It's like... Um, I think it was James Cameron that once said, when you when you make a movie, you actually write it three times. You know, you write it when you are writing it, then you rewrite it as you're filming it, and then you write it again as you're editing it because you find things that don't work and you take things out or you add things. The um, Going for Rage of Innocence, um, I'd have to go back and look at the script and see if the narration was still there, but I know that when it ended... I kind of stole that idea from uh, Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. You remember when uh, Juliet, Juliet Lewis, Juliet Lewis, yeah. Yes. Um, She, I don't know if she starts the movie with narration, but I know she ends the movie with narration. Um, So I kind of borrowed that little moment. And I love the bit where uh, Chelsea, the actress in my film says, you know, well, Reagan, Reagan's Raven's movie is over with now fade out and then she looks to the camera and we fade out 
that kind of gives me a little chills. Um, and then, yep. um, and then the bit with, uh, in celluloid soul, I don't remember if the narration was in there. I think it may not have been, it may have just ended with him talking to the gravestone and then we see her fade away and that might've just been the end. So, um, you know, th- that was um, 17, that's like five years ago. So like sometimes I'd have to go back and look at the script and see what was in and what wasn't. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent sure if the narration was there when I'm editing a movie, uh, kind of will run through the scenes and I might say, you know, what do I need to make this better or what do I need to make this clearer? Um, Sometimes it'll come to me in a moment, and sometimes I might, you know, wake up the next day and say, I got it, you know, but, um, and I never really thought, I never put that much thought into my earlier films. My earlier films were just kind of like, you know, mad dash, let's have fun. It was as I got older, um, and I guess, I don't know, I hate to use the word more mature, I don't <laughs> like that word, but as one got older, one sort of did feel more heart to put into a film. There's not a lot of heart in my earlier films. Maybe colorblinded might get close to it, but most of my earlier films were, you know, like I say, cartoons. You, you don't take them seriously. The characters are, are caricatures, but it wasn't until the later half of my career, which I would say celluloid, I mean, um, uh, colorblinded onward is probably where I started caring more about the characters and really wanting to make them even, even something as ridiculous as Rectuma make the characters believe their moments, believe the situations that they're in. And, um, you know, I think if, if anything, that was probably one of the things that may have, I may have grown as a filmmaker. Well, the one thing that I'm glad you haven't grown with as a filmmaker, you mentioned about the writing and stuff. We're talking about, you know, deceased. Cause that's the most recent one. The fact that it's this heady premise, there's the location shot. There's all these characters, but you still take the time to throw in there the gags, like with the drunk at the bar, right? (laughs) And, like, you don't see stuff like that in movies anymore. That feels very, like, 80s, 90s comedy. And when it came up in this, it felt, like, so refreshing. It's like, this is, like, missing from movies. These are the (laughs) movies that, like, we grew up on watching, a gag like this. Doesn't do anything to really move the plot along, but it's just a character bit. It's a funny joke. You bring the audience along, and I love the fact that you still have stuff like that in your films. Great. Well, I'm glad to hear that you like it. I mean, this is, you know, when I put these things in, sometimes I kind of refer to, uh, like, I call it it a Quentin Tarantino, um, because sometimes he'll do the same thing. You know, he'll throw in references to other things that have nothing to do with what's going on. And I would always say to my director of photography, uh, give me a Tarantino here. Like, that means give me a close-up of something that doesn't need to have a close-up of. Like, I think there's a scene in Celluloid Soul where he comes home and he throws the keys on the table. And I got a close-up of the keys going on the table. No reason for it, but that's a Tarantino moment for me. Um, I think the scene in in, uh, Deceased where she grabs the poker and gets ready to, you know, fight off the other girl with the poker. Give me a Tarantino of here grabbing the poker, you know, so... You start, you start adding more of these little fragments to the show to give it more depth. And sometimes uh, there are shots that probably I didn't need to spend the time to get that other little shot in there. You know, there might be times when it's like, well, let's do it just to break it up. But, you know, it's, it's almost like um, it's like music, I guess. If I were a musician, 
you you know you could stop with just two or three different instruments or you could add more instruments to it and you could add more depth to it which is something that just comes along as the creative process moves and you know, moves along right and as you're talking about your little director like you know, the things that make are your style as director in the writing how much of it because i see a lot of things is is meta like you doing uh putting it in because that's the way it is for you kind of like in the god complex when you do the shaky cam bit where right. like they're 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 you know they're talking to jesus and they're like would you hold the goddamn camera straight and right. dear god i hope that never catches on like nice. how much do you like sliding the, like Mark Pirro the way you think into like getting that out there? Cause I've seen a couple that we're probably going to hit as we go. Mm. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I've never been a fan of the shaky cam and I've seen it. In fact, I won't watch a born identity movie anymore. I watched, I think one of them and I felt like I was on a roller coaster. You know, it's like, uh, I, I don't even remember. I think maybe the first movie I saw it in might've been one of the early Woody Allen films and not early, but one of, one of his films where it's like there was no tripod. Everything was handheld. And I thought, this is like a student film. Then I noticed it started catching on more and more. And as you watch a lot of these mainstream movies, um, I think it's called a nervous camera. I think that's the official title for it. Because whenever you're watching a scene and it's supposed to be tense, you might start seeing the camera do these crazy moves because that's supposed to subconsciously make the audience unnerved. Well, it makes me unnerved consciously. So um, that's why I put that reference into it in my movie where the camera is obviously going nuts. And then he turns and says, put that fucking thing on a tripod, because it was, that's what I would have said if I were in a movie theater. and wanted to scream at the filmmaker. So there might be other moments in my films where my personality will come through. Um, you know, I. I'm not a fan of religion, which is probably obvious uh, if you've seen my films, you know, but it came to a, a head in the God complex, although I've hinted at it in other films. I think there's a scene in Queer Wolf where he is, um, let's see, he, the, the four torchmen come into his house and, and attack them. And then later on, his girlfriend says, uh, you know, what, what's going on with you? And he goes, I just have a terrible problem. And she says, why was there a priest in our house tonight? Are you involved in some kind of religion? He goes, no, no, my problem is not quite as disastrous as that. <laughs> um, that was a little a gotcha in there. And I think in News Calling of the Dead, the whole thing is battling the religious zealots. Um, that probably stems from my childhood as well, brought up Catholic until I reached the age of reason. Um, then there's God complex, which is, you know, we go full force and, skewer the bible with no holes barred which um at the time you know i was getting a little resistance because i have a couple of religious friends which i keep around just for comic relief and um uh you know they know me and they know that none of my movies are done to be malicious they're done simply to entertain and it's kind of like telling a joke uh that's off color and you're not going to tell the joke if you're it's like um I remember we had a screening once of Polish Vampire, and I was doing a Q&A. <clears throat> and a lot of people, again, they understand that I don't come from a malicious place. I'm doing it to be com comical. And somebody raised his hand and said, you know, why did you pick Poland? I, go, I don't know. It just sounded funny. Polish Vampire in Burbank. His name is Dupa. You know, it's just, uh, I thought it was funny. He goes, well, I'm Polish. I said, should I talk slower? <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> I got all and that was the end of that. And, and uh you know, but I, I, anytime I put whatever might be part of me in it, like um, there's a whole conversation at the beginning of Celluloid Soul 
where they're in the car and he's talking to his girlfriend and she's going, yeah, it has to be an higher power that makes these things happen. And he's going like, you know, no, it's not. It's like uh, putting water in a cup. The water is going to take the shape of the cup and all that. That's probably partially me too, you know, but I think any writer is going to pull from whatever, you know, whatever they've got to pull from in their uh, repertoire. So yeah. I, I, I definitely feel, you know, you mentioned your, uh, you know, your religious upbringing until reason. I had a religious upbringing. I have a son. He doesn't have that sort of religious upbringing. So I always wonder when I watch a movie like yours and I'm like, oh, references like are <laughs> references like this eventually going to go out of style or are people just not going to get them anymore? Like, well, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think religion is going to ever really go away. Um, I think to a certain extent, because now we do have more um, ways of researching things. And, you know, you have people that can actually go on the Internet and try to find resources and answers and all that. I think um, organized religion in itself will eventually dissolve, but it'll it'll always there'll always be fringes. You know, I mean, there are people that still believe the world is flat. You know, I mean, there's still people out there, you know, I mean, you know, like like the people that vote for Trump, you know, and they think that he's God's second coming. So there's always going to be that somewhere. But I think the numbers are diminishing now. If you look back on any of these movies 20 or 30 or 50 years from now, you know, it might be looking at um, a movie that was made in the 30s that talked about what the future was going to be like. You know, I mean, there's there's some kind of humor that I think is kind of timeless. Like you can look at an old Monty Python movie. And the jokes still work. I mean, you know, it's a different type of, of humor. And I think uh, the line was drawn back when Airplane came out. I think Airplane changed comedy um, originally, you know, because that's when you. Well, actually, no, there was a movie before that Kentucky Fried movie. Oh, yes. That, that kind of set the pace. I, I think that was around the time Saturday Night Live started uh, coming out. or I think maybe a couple years afterwards. But um you know, everybody tries different things and they want to try to reinvent the wheel. And and then, um, like, when you look at a movie like Airplane or the Naked Gun movies, brilliant. You know, the comedy was great. They had straight actors playing these comedic parts, whereas in, in you know, in the 70s, they would have hired Harvey Corman and Dom DeLuise and, you know, Jonathan Winters to play these parts. But to get Leslie Nielsen and Peter Graves and, you know, get all those straight actors. That was a brilliant move. But then later on, in my opinion, uh, Leslie Nielsen kind of wore out his welcome because then he started to play the clown, you know, and he started to do these movies where he was like, look at me, I'm funny now. And then I started losing it, you know, for him. I mean, because it's, it's funny when the person playing the comedy doesn't think he's being funny. Again, in my opinion, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's, you got the slapstick like the uh, Jim Varney Ernest movies that went on to make a lot of money, too, which is the other side of the coin. That's me. Look at me. I am funny. Laugh. That kind of that's a throwback to Jerry Lewis, you know, who was the clown. So there's different types of humor. There's different types of comedy. And I think that sometimes if you look back and like you look at a Jerry Lewis movie today, I don't know if it's going to get a laugh with a regular audience. It'll get a laugh with his fans, and it'll get a laugh with people that are into that world. But if you just put it in front of today's kids, they're gonna look at this and probably say this is dumb, you know. And and somebody years from now might look at my stuff and say, you know, what's what's the what's the humor here? It could go the other way too, because they could also say, 
you know, we made Curse of the Queer Wolf before transgender was a thing. You know, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't, I, I don't think you'd heard about it much. And um, we did it because it was funny. It actually happened to a friend of mine that was in a bar and he picked up a girl that turned out not to be a girl. He told me that story and I thought, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. What'd you do? You're reaching down there and you found a big pair of sweaty spheres, uh, something like that. <laughs> what a great idea for a film. But, you know, it started out as a minor character in Polish Vampire and then I expanded it in Curse of the Queer Wolf. But, uh, you know, and I got a lot of heat at the time. Oh, why would you want to make a movie like this? They wanted me to change the title. They wanted me to do all these different things because then we can't sell a movie like this. Okay, well, this is the movie I wanted to make. You know, they wanted to call it Curse of the Weird Wolf or give it yeah. some yeah. title. And, um, you know, so I stuck with my guns and said, no, this is the movie I want to make. Now, today, nobody has a problem with it. You know, it's, it's in fact, gays sort of embrace this movie because they know it's not a homophobic movie. It's a comedy about two straight guys that run into a situation that's totally bizarre. I, I, re I remember when we watched it, you know, obviously you, you dip your toes into the 80s and you come across a lot of comedies that don't handle situations like this. Uh, with, And I don't want to say sensitivity, but in a much more hard-edged, much more mocking way. And your mm -hmm. movie definitely did not have that. And we were like, this is like crazy progressive for a movie of this time like you could just take this movie whole cloth today put it out today and like you really wouldn't have to like worry about being you know canceled or whatever it is because you know you could tell the sensibilities as you mentioned of your sensibilities and the people involved that came across that there was no malice there was no hatred there wasn't haha -ha, laugh at these people it was more like this is a story we're telling and these are the these are the characters that we're using for it Right. But you, you'll always find somebody that's going to have a problem. You know, I mean, uh, you can't please everybody. And I never, no. you know, my goal has always been to please me and my audience. So it's like, what makes me laugh? And the other advantage is because these movies were shot on such a low budget, I didn't have to answer to anybody. Um, you know, if I had a studio behind me, they'd probably say, you got to change this. You got to cut this. You can't do that, whatever. So when you're making a movie and you have no one to answer to, you can do these things. And again, we never really expected these movies to make anything. I mean, you know, once we did Polish Vampire, we thought, well, maybe we have a future and we can do these things. But it got to a place where I always wanted to make a movie that I would enjoy watching. A couple of times I did horror myself out for the money. <coughs> like um, Buford's Beach Bunny is a perfect example. That's not a movie I would have made on my own. Um, but that was a company that hired me to make a sex comedy. So I did it for the money. Um, and, and, I, and I was very disappointed by that because I didn't have final cut. So when they, uh, when it went out, they re-edited it and, you know, t took the heart of my jokes, but left the sex in. So they wanted, I guess, more sex, less jokes. And now you've got setups and no punchlines. And I ended up putting out a director's cut version on my website because that's the only way you can see it the way I intended it to be made, which was like 101 minutes, I think. And now they cut it down to 90 minutes, something like that. But, you know, so but I determined at that point I would never make another movie for another person that I didn't have complete control over. Because, you know, whether you get paid or not, the movie's going to last. It's going to follow you around like a bad case of herpes, you know. So <laughs> you, you make a bad movie. It's going to be there forever. Um, you know, Beach Bunnies is part of my library and it's going to be around. Everything else I've done, I'm pretty happy with. 
with the exception of Nudist Colony of the Dead, and that's only because of the inferior look that it has, the quality of it. But um, other than that, I stand behind every other film I make, whether it insults people, like my sister is very religious, um, wasn't a big fan of the God Complex. In fact, I think it's one of the only premieres she did not choose to show up at. Um, and and But it wasn't made for her. You know, she's not the audience. The audience are people that have evolved a little bit and can laugh at the absurdity. And I know a few religious people that do enjoy the God Complex. My one religious friend, um, who is, like I say, very religious, she was laughing at parts of it. The only part she doesn't like is the burning bush segment. She thought that was a little <laughs> over the top. But, um, but yeah, I, I never make these to, oh, boy, who can I offend? No, it's, uh, let's just make a movie that people can enjoy. You know, I mean, you found it. You enjoyed it. Um, there are other people out there that might have the opposite opinion. You know, why would he do such trash? I mean, you can read some of the reviews. I know that some of the early reviews, they would look at these movies and go, what a waste of time. Why are these films out? Death Row Game Show got across the board bad reviews when it first came out. Um, since it's been re-released on Blu-ray, it's gotten much better reviews because I guess the world caught up to it. I mean, television is almost like Death Row Game Show now. You know, you've got crazy things happening in the world um, that would the Death Row Game Show would fit in perfectly in today's world, you know. So sometimes you're ahead of the curve and you don't even know it. Yeah, and you're you're talking about like your 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 film catalog and stuff like that. Do you consider it like a shared universe? I know that I'm doing that in tongue in cheek because a lot of times um, I noticed that uh, Gloria Stern Virgin from you mentioned Death Row Game Show would be like cameo all through it, and she was originally like a talk show host, and now she's uh, you know a a news reporter. So you always have the news crawl and you have all that stuff, and she moves throughout the movies. Do you think of it as a big like? There's always a Rectuma poster in the background, like you have yeah. in your office there and stuff like that. I love it. So the I always consider it the Pyro shared universe, if that makes any sense. Yeah, a lot of that is inadvertent. Um, like Robin Blythe, who played Gloria Cern Virgin, we've been, we've stayed friends for years. I mean, she was my girlfriend at the time, oddly enough. But when we did Death Row Game Show, uh, we did that film. And then when we did Nudist Colony of the Dead, she did a lot of the singing in that film. A lot of those voices are redubbed, and she's doing some of the singing, so she helped me out. Uh, when we did Rectuma... Um, I just said, you want to do a cameo? And she was just going to be the news reporter. But then I thought, well, what the fuck? We'll just put, you know, Gloria Stern version underneath it so we can kind of make a reference to her because it's the same person. And then same thing in, um, in Deceased Won't Desist. We needed a newscaster. I asked her if she wanted to do it for, you know, we could shoot it in an afternoon. And the calling her Gloria Stern version was, again, an afterthought. Um, so, but yeah, then it, it did, it does kind of tie it all together. And the same thing with the, uh, the queer billies from curse of the queer wolf, um, to get McCafferty and Patrick Hunter, who played the second queer Billy to play the queer priests in Rectuma, exact same actors. That's part of the same deal. Although I don't think McCafferty got credit on that film. I think he did that one without his name on the credits, but he was the same character. So yeah, I do tend to, and in fact, Jesus um, the character that played Jesus in the God Complex, Dennis Kennard, who was also the star of Celluloid Soul, he plays Jesus again in Deceased Won't Desist, in the priest's dream sequence. <laughs> same same guy. So, you know, I, I do enjoy sometimes using the same actors, and I guess it goes back to McCafferty playing the spy in Polish Vampire, making reference to him being the spy and the spy who did it better. So, um, 
but it's not really planned, you know. I mean, I mean, I did at one time start writing a sequel to Nudist Colony of the Dead, which was going to be a direct sequel to the original, and it was going to make reference to the original movie a lot. I was going to use some of the same actors that are still around from the original movie, and there was going to be one in joke that and they were going to say, "Can you remember what happened twenty years ago?" Because well, it's kind of it's kind of foggy. In fact, it's kind of underexposed, and it's kind of out of focus. <laughs> but it's coming back to me, and you know, I was going to use reference to the fact that the first movie was underexposed and unfocused, blah blah blah. So, so, um, but other than that, it's usually an unconscious thing if I do it, and and then when I'm editing the movie, and I think, oh yeah, you know, let's let's call her Gloria Stern Virgin again, and make her the same character, you know, from the old days. When we were watching the movies, and we would see the characters <laughs> popping up again and again, and some of the earlier stuff or themes or like. Here's in My Mom's a Werewolf, and then there's the poster for something else in the background. It's like, oh, these movies all exist together, and we just laugh because as the movies go on, and you take shots, and rightfully so in some points, at some of your bigger budget comic book movies these days. And mm-hmm. obviously, I, I guess you're not a fan of those, but, you know. I can take them or leave them, you know. I okay. Mean, yeah, I, I think, um, I don't remember any direct, uh, uh, well, I think there's like one character in, Maybe it's in Rage of Innocence where she's talking about didn't care much for Avengers or um, she named her kid after X-Men's Raven. Right. Uh, she, and she, so she might say, I'm well, not a big fan of the movie, but I like the character. I mean, that's just, you know, it's just the character talking. I mean, because okay. I, I, I could okay. watch the movies and not, you know, it, it, I don't have an opinion either way on those. Right. And then on um, another one that you do mention throughout the movie, so I don't know if it's your opinion, mm-hmm. is uh, you take shots at Daniel Craig as James Bond. <laughs> and I'm gathering you and especially McCaffrey, because he does a spot on Sean Connery. You're fans of James Bond, but did not like Daniel Craig. as I'm a big James Bond fan. That's why I, I was. I, I turned in my card uh, when Daniel Craig took it over, because I thought when I first heard Daniel Craig was in the movie, I thought, oh, he'll make a great bad guy. And then it's like, no, he's Bond. What are you thinking? What? Now, don't forget, I'm old school. I'm Sean Connery, James Bond. I mean, I I would be, no exaggeration, I would be the first in line and the last to leave the theater when a Sean Connery Bond movie was out. Uh, and when Diamonds Are Forever came out, that was after he left for one movie and came back. I must have seen the movie without exaggerating 20, 30 times in the theater. Um, of course, movies were... 25 cents then, 50 cents, but still. Um, so I was a big, huge James Bond fan, so much so I met Barbara Broccoli at her house years ago. In fact, John McCafferty and I went to her house to watch On Her Majesty's Secret Service with her when she was 19. And that's <laughs> that was because at the time, my friend Eric Douglas knew the Broccolis uh, because they shot, there's a scene in Diamonds Are Forever where Plenty O'Toole gets drowned in a swimming pool um that was at kirk douglas's summer house that's where they shot it so eric and kirk they knew the broccoli so at one time barbara was shooting a super eight film a short super eight film when she was learning filmmaking and eric said to me would you like to help barbara broccoli shoot a little super eight movie it's like what i yes so we met her and i was talking to her about how i'm making my own little james bond parody called the spy who did it better and and i said but you know my james bond actor he kind of, he's more like a George Lazenby than a Sean Connery. And he's never seen Her Majesty's Secret Service. She said, well, come on over. We'll run it. And we, this was before VHS. So we ran it on 16 millimeter in <laughs> her guest house. 
So cool. Again, McCafferty and I are the only two that can really verify the story, but it happened. And then, um, you know, so I, and I, and I, I'm good friends with Steve Rubin who wrote the James Bond encyclopedia. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty big Bond aficionado. Um, anyway, wasn't a huge Roger Moore fan, but I, I came to accept him because even though Roger Moore was a different Bond, they still followed the formula kind of, I mean, they kind of veered off into Matt Helm area, but you know, it still felt Bond ish. But when the first Daniel Craig movie came out, I watched the first one because I thought I'd give it a shot. As soon as it didn't start with a gun barrel sequence, I knew we were going to be in trouble right then and there. Because that's the thing that every Bond fan used to get excited about. You know, that would be what gets you in the mood. That uh, Those circles going across the screen and him coming there and him shooting and the red veil comes down. That's what gets you into it. Well, first one didn't start with that, and that was the beginning of my trouble with the film. And then, of course, I couldn't identify with him. He was like a, he was like a whiny little bitch throughout the movie. You know, they, they, he wasn't cool. Bond used to be cool, right? So, uh, and then you know, I, I had not seen one in its entirety since Casino Royale. So, all I feel four other movies have been wasted for me or with me. Um, you know, I've seen clips. I've gone on YouTube and like I watched the last five minutes of the last one over and over and over again on a loop because that's the only part I enjoy watching, but I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I just couldn't get into it. So yes, I put little digs, but they're comical digs. About oh yeah, I get it. I get it. In, in my films. Cause anybody that knows me knows that's kind of the way I feel about the Dan, Daniel Craig era. And, um, you know, so yeah, that's it. Cause I, I got in, I mean, I'll admit, cause I'm, I'm a little younger. I got in on the, the Roger Moore. So Roger Moore is my guy, but you know, I appreciate the, the, the Sean Connors. I did not like the Timothy Dalton ones. I thought they were kind of, kind of weak with, they went a different way, but right. I, 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 I kind of like the Daniel Craig for me. I have fun with them. I feel they're a different one, but my problem with James Bond, I think is we're in the day, uh, where gadgets are real. You know what I mean? Like, that was the cool thing about James Bond. It was like, oh, I have my compressed air pen in my pocket, or I have my laser watch, or my magnet this, and it's like, I can do three quarters of the things James Bond did in the 70s with my phone. You know what I mean? And I think that's what's going to hurt James Bond from here on out, if that makes sense. Well, I think that's that's why they kind of had to go in a different direction, and I understand. You know, I mean, Bond in the early, early days used to be the leader and everybody followed Bond. You know, they would make these Bond parodies in the late 60s. You couldn't go to a movie theater without seeing a Bond parody or a Bond ripoff. You know, mm-hmm. they did the, the Matt Helm series. They did the Michael Caine. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, Harry Palmer. Um, they did the Derek Flint with um, I can't think of his name. James Coburn. Anyway, yes. they made a bunch of those. Then around the 70s, it was the other way around. Bond started following what was popular. Um, they had the Kung Fu movies that were really popular in the late 70s. Moonraker. They, they did them. Well, they did The Man with the Golden Gun, which had Kung Fu. Right. Before that, it was the black exploitation films. So Live and Let Die became right. sort of a uh, rehash of that. Uh, Moonraker, right, because of Star Wars. Yep, that's uh, what, why it was popular. In fact, after I think it was after The Spy Who Loved Me, it was announced that the next one was going to be For Your Eyes Only. Um, at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, it says Bond will be back in For Your Eyes Only. But they changed that between pictures because, wait a minute, Star Wars just hit big. Next mm-hmm. one has to be Moonraker. So, and now, uh, with Daniel Craig, it's Born Identity. You know, let's follow the Jason Bourne character and they'll make him this flawed 
uh, you know, guy with, uh, with issues and problems. And, you know, so now it's like, okay, Bond isn't necessarily cool anymore. Now he's just this guy that's got issues. And, you know, and again, it's not fair for me to completely judge it because I've only seen one. And, um, but I used to look forward to every Bond movie. I mean, I would, I would get the magazines. I would, uh, you know, do whatever I could to find out what's happening in the new Bond movie. I would even try to track down scripts before it was easy to find them. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, yeah, I lost all interest when Daniel Craig took it over. Now, will I come back? Whatever they do next? I don't know. I mean, it's, to me, it's almost like that ship has sailed. It's like watching an OJ Simpson movie. Now, can you really get into an OJ Simpson movie today? <laughs> you know, or, or, or if you see a movie that was pre 2001 and you see the twin towers in the movie, can you know, can you really not think about what happened there? It sort of ruins it. So, that's what Daniel Craig's era did to me. I know for me, a lot of the Daniel Craig era was kind of the Jason Bourneification. I guess exactly. it was a different style of action, and mm-hmm. I could definitely see things coming back around to you know the older style. You know the Sean Connery era. You know the one George Lazenby uh, offshoot, but like that older look, that older feel. I think can come back in kind of a, like a retro feel sort of thing. You just say it's a a period piece. You film it back then, you gear everything back, I think it can come back. I really think there's meat in the bone left for James Bond. I really do. They tried that with one of the video games. I don't know if you remember, they did uh, From Russia With Love as a video game. Okay. Uh, And they got Sean Connery to do the voiceover for it. And this was made, I think, in 2002 or 2004, something in that era. And it was kind of weird to see because... At that time, Connery didn't sound like Bond. I mean, Connery kind of talked like this at this point. So you see this young (laughs) avatar of Sean Connery that they made look like from the 60s. And then you'd hear his voice going, my name is Bond, shaken, not stood, please. You know, so it was nostalgic to have Connery do it. But, um, you know, it's sort of like, well, that's an era that's gone. So what are you going to do? Now, uh, getting back to your movies, one of the things that Todd and I love, um, you know, you're going back to the early, you know, the early movies, the crazy credits, the stuff that you work in, the gags, the jokes, whether it be people that work on the film, uh, then you get the recurring ones that are everything from like catering is by Brown Baggett to transportation is our cars. Anytime we see those, we love it. Now, again, I, I'm not going to say that you're the first movies that we've seen do it, but, you know, I think we saw it in movies maybe like 86, 87, but, you know, we're talking about movies going back to, that was in <laughs> Vampire and Burbank. I'm giving you credit with being one of the first people to do that. Well, I would say among the first. I don't know if we were the first. I think um, the first might have been, might have been Airplane. I okay. Think did, and that was 1980. Um, so ours was 83. So, you know, we were in the general vicinity of that, but, um, a lot of times it was just because there were no credits to put in these movies. I mean, most of the time it was me and three other people. So, um, other than the actors, you you know, you you didn't want to see like three credits go by and that's the end. Or a lot of times in low budget films, you see the same actor or the same (laughs) producer's name over and over again, written by so-and-so written, uh, directed by so-and-so catering by so-and-so and all that. So, I would take different names and sometimes I'd have them make fun with them. Sometimes I would make them sound like real names. Um, But yeah, we would always pad our credits to this day. We still do it Um, because again, there's not a lot of names to go around, but um, I think there was one film we did. 
trying to remember where, uh, oh, like um, I did the music for uh, Colorblinded, but I didn't want to give myself credit as, as a music composer because I'm not. But I did it for that film because I found a new program that allowed you to pick up notes and move them around and make it sound kind of orchestral. Um, so I, I used the name Marky Elfman. I was just going to ask. Yeah, because when me. we saw that name come up, we wondered, we're like, is this like a lesser known Elfman <laughs> or is this Mark having some fun? And that's then we tried to find credits. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so funny. As soon as you were and going, think, I'm like, oh, it's Marky Elfman. I knew it. Yeah, and I think um, I think I take a credit for visual effects as Mark's eye, Mark's eye effect or something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, you'll see me surprised. Sometimes you'll see a mark in the credit, but it won't be specific. Like uh, there used to be a sound company. I think it's still around called Glenn Glenn Sound. Um, and I have a credit in one of my films as sound by Mark Mark Sound, you know. So, yes. Um, yeah. But and other times, like I say, sometimes there'll be names that almost sound completely legitimate, but it's only because we needed to pad the credits. Uh, I mean, my last few films literally the crew is my or was myself and my my director of photography craig bassick we were the only two that were always on the set once in a while we would have a hand like i got a friend named daniel kraus who comes out and helps us as continuity or whatever uh wasn't there every single day but sometimes people will just show up to help out but the nucleus of the crew were were you know were bruce and myself so you know, you need to pad things. So the, again, you, you want to, it's almost a smoke and mirror game because you don't want the film. I mean, people know it's low budget, but you don't want them to think it's that low budget. So, um, you know, a lot of times the actors themselves will be crew members too. You know, in fact, there's, um, I think there's a scene in the abortion clinic in my last film where Deborah Lamb, who plays the ex-wife of Rudy is in the abortion clinic. She's one of the patients, but she's wearing like a gray wig and she covers her face. And, you know, so uh, there's another scene in the restaurant where um, Damon's character, the black filmmaker is talking to a producer in a restaurant. That's when the waitress comes out and she, you know, she had her tits hanging out and all that. Um, But there's a scene where we didn't have any extra, none of my extras showed up. So I have one character who played the abortionist, who is the extra. So when the camera is on the black guy, you see the back of the head of Doug McPherson, who was the abortionist. And when the camera's the other way, you see the back of his head with a different shirt on. And I think <laughs> I have, and, and that's the same guy in both cuts. So, cause he was the only guy that was there to be an extra. Um, I think we had the bartender gal or the, um, the coffee server and one other guy that came by later, but these are the things you have to deal with. You know, when, when we shot the scene in Rage of Innocence where we needed a school filled with kids, we managed to get seven kids um, <laughs> and we spread them out, you know, and, and they were supposed to look like two different classrooms of kids. And I told them, bring a different change of clothing. And if you got a hat or a wig or something, you know, in fact, I'm one of the kids in some of those scenes. So, uh, you know, I don't look like I'm a teenager and I didn't back then either. But there's a scene where I think I'm wearing a red shirt or, or a red uh, velvet shirt. And you just see like the top of the head and the side of the shirt. But, you know, if they got a close up of my face, I looked like Ringo's dad. You know, I actually looked like a kid. But but I mean, these are things you do, you know, and, and we were lucky to get seven kids. Uh, to- we 
we did note when we were watching Rage of Innocence that the uh, age of the kids in the class varied wildly. And we're like, <laughs> is this a high school class? Is this a college class? How are we get away with it? I'm like, no, it's just who they had as extras that day. You special know? ed. Yeah, it was like a special ed class, you know, <laughs> whatever we could get. But, uh, now, but yeah, I mean, again, these are the these are the issues. Getting an extra in a film is probably almost as hard as getting a, a, an actor to commit because you probably harder because they know that they're not going to get anything out of this. You know, I mean, if they enjoy the process of being around filmmaking, then great. Uh, when we did Polish Vampire, you know, we had like a pool party scene. And I don't know if you ever saw, there's a documentary on the making of Polish Vampire. And I know that's online. That's on YouTube. But we, we, the, part, the pool party scene took like, I think, eight nights to shoot. And each night we had less and less people. So there's some scenes where you see a lot of people standing around dancing, playing, whatever. And then as the nights progressed, you start seeing maybe two or three people in the corner. And then here's the main people there. Uh, you know, it just got to the point where there were less and less people because the novelty wears off. You know, if, if you're interested in being involved in a film, OK, the first night, wow, this is fun. You know, they're making movies. We're doing magic here. And then the second night, oh, I don't know. All right, I'll show up. And then the third night. Okay, I don't think I'm really enjoying this much anymore because there's a lot of waiting around. Uh, people get tired easily. Um, you know, we shot a scene in a bar for uh, my first for Polish vampire. A friend of mine owned a bar um, called Mucho Mas here, and it was in Burbank. And he let us have it from like you know, I think midnight to four in the morning, and we had it filled with a handful of extras. But we lost half of them by the end of the night, you know, because again, it's. Uh, they get tired and, and there's no compensation and sometimes we don't even have craft services, you know? So, uh, that was, um, that was the first time I learned that you want to keep people as interested as possible and you want them to really be into what you're doing, you know? And, and the ones that have made it to today, 40 years later, some of them are the same people from Polish vampire, Bruce Heinzius, who was my director of photography on my last few films he was just an extra on Polish Vampire. I met him when he was like 16 and uh, just hung around, hung around the set, helped us out with whatever we needed to do. And, you know, we're still associates all these years later. Craig Basick, another example, who was the cameraman on Polish Vampire and has gone on to DP a few of my other films and has gone on to do visual effects on my later films. You know, because we're in it because of the passion. You know, we're in it because we enjoy the process and we enjoy each other as friendship. You know, I, when he has something going, I'll help him. Uh, you know, that, that's the way it is with a lot of my actors and a lot of my crew. If any of them need me to help them on any of their projects, they don't even have to ask. You know, I'm there to, to help whatever they need to have done. You had mentioned about craft services, and we had to laugh, of course. You know, little things. <laughs> Sometimes you do a fantastic job with the budget, everything else involved of hiding or masking things, but there's the bit in Rage of Innocence where John and, you know, the, the <laughs> female, his romantic interest, are outside eating lunch. Mm -hmm. And it appears as though they're eating the same empty hot dog bun <laughs> for the entirety of the scene. There wasn't a hot dog in those buns? There absolutely was not. Wow, see? I didn't even know that. I would have thought that we would have at least sprung for a hot dog. <laughs> well, I know there's a scene when they're at, um, they're at the pier... With a, with a Ferris wheel and all that. Right. Whatever they're eating there, I know there's real food because we bought it. But um, but when the scene prior to that, that's weird. No, I didn't I didn't even think about that. But I would have thought. 
That must have just been one of those oversights, or maybe maybe they ate it on one of the takes and (laughs) really one. It looks like it's just an empty button, but uh, I I have a a question for you when it comes to like acting. I know you were in Polish Vampire in Burbank out of necessity because of what happened and everything like that. And you, I would see you in cameos throughout the films and you doing the abortion commercial and the dead won't deceased won't desist is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. You looking down the barrel of the camera the whole time uh, was the best in all the gags in it. But was there, after you did Polish vampire, you never really wanted to act direct again. You just wanted to be behind the camera. Was it too hard or you just don't like it or. Yeah, no, it's just one extra thing you have to worry about, you know, and in in addition to worrying about the camera work, the lighting, the sound, all that, now you got to worry about remembering lines. Now, in um, Queer Wolf, I was one of the four Torchmen, so um, I don't even remember how that came about. One of them maybe didn't show up. You know, I I really don't know how I got into that part. I don't think that I planned on it. Um, The bit with... um, uh, let's see. Wait a minute. In in deceased won't desist. The abortion uh, commercial originally it was going to be the guy that played the abortionist. He was going to be the guy in the commercial. I was going to be the abortionist, and I was oh. going to take I was going to take that role just because it was one less person I had to get up to that damn cabin. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we need to get ten people up at this cabin it's going to be almost impossible to, to coordinate 10 schedules. So I said, if I can take that role, that's one less person. Well, there was a misunderstanding. And when I told Doug, I wanted him for that little part there, he misunderstood me and he thought I, he was going to be the abortionist. So then I thought, you know what? He's dependable. I can, I can rely on him. I've used him before. So I gave him that role. And then I took the, uh, the part in the commercial and it worked out fine. But that's how that came about. And then I think the only other time I did a cameo was in Rectuma. I did the uh, Hannibal Lecter character. Yes, and, in the flashbacks, yes. Yeah, and I, I don't even remember if that was another one of those. The guy didn't show up or whatever reason. But I never really write these with me planning on being in them. And, and usually now if I'm in them, it's just a quick thing to, to fill a, a hole. But, uh, yeah. And you as the torchbearer and all the other guys in the telephone booth is one of the best visual gags. Just the fact that you're climbing in windows in a house with flaming torches and like you're four of you jammed in a phone booth with to- lit torches sticking out of it. I'm like, this is fantastic. And that's why I always liked when you'd show up as a cameo, because I thought you did such a good job, especially in Polish vampire and in the, the abortionist commercial. So I, I hopefully we'll see some more of you. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, sometimes I'm an extra. I think in, in the uh, in the scene where the two actors in Rage of Innocence are eating, uh, having lunch during the school break, I'm pretty sure that most of the people you see walking back and forth are me. Um, <laughs> I think there's a, I know there's a scene when I'm sitting in the table behind, I think it's John's character. Uh, and, yeah, I'm, I'm the extra there, too. So uh, most of the time. I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll fill a void. That's usually what I'll do if, if a, a body is needed somewhere. But for the most part, uh, yeah, I've never really had a desire to be an actor. I starred in my first short, Buns, as the crazed hamburger killer. Uh, <laughs> but again, and I did that because, well, you know, you know you're not going to quit. Uh, you never know when you bring an actor in. Like when we did Queer Wolf, we had a hard time with the lead actor, Mike Palazzolo, who played the Queer Wolf. 
he lost interest. But I learned my lesson from Polish Vampire. I, I had to kiss his ass a lot throughout the movie. And I had to cater to him and you know make him as happy as possible. But a lot of times he would show up not knowing his lines, not even looking at the script. And all the other actors are like looking at me like, would it kill you to hire somebody that knows what he's doing here? But, you know, and we were tour guides together. So I thought I could depend on him. But he stuck it out. But it was like pulling teeth. I mean, there would be some days where he would say, OK, I got to be out of here in two hours. It's like, Michael, we got 14 pages we have to do. Well, you got two hours. OK, let's go, guys. You know, um, so sometimes, again, when you know that you're going to get an actor that <clears throat> might screw around with you. Uh, you panic, especially once you've established them. If you know, if you haven't started with them, then you know you can always ask them. Like that happened with uh, celluloids. No, <laughs> uh, colorblinded. The lead actress in colorblinded wasn't originally the one we we ended up with. <clears throat> um, we had, I mean, the the girl that we hired, we shot with her for I think one or two days, and I saw the writing on the wall. She started to become a problem. So we fired her right away and then brought in Danny Leone, who was a friend of mine, uh, who ended up taking over the role. And she ended up playing the white version of that girl for the rest of the film. But, you know, you're 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 at the mercy of your actors once you start shooting. You know, if, if they decide they don't want to stick around, there's little you can do to keep them there if they're not happy. You hear that so much and really, you know, obviously much different with low budget filmmaking versus big budget filmmaking. But to to be the to be the director, to be the person in charge, to be able to suss that out, to know the person who we're on day one and I could tell this person's not making it to day eight, mm -hmm. day 12, day whatever. And to say, I'm hedging my bets now. Get rid of this person now. Let's find someone else. Right. Um, you know, and you also mentioned about how the roles ended up being reversed with deceased, how you were going to play the uh, abortionist role. Mm -hmm. And things got flip-flop there. Had there ever been situations like that where you're filming and you have the the principles there, this person is playing this role, that person is playing this role, two, three days in, you're like, no, this is wrong. Let's flip these people around or something of that nature where another situation where you've seen something wasn't working out or maybe someone was miscast at first <laughs> and yeah. changed role. That, that happened uh, pretty much in Queer Wolf. Because once Michael Palazzolo, the star of the film, started giving us grief, I ended up rewriting it and giving a lot of the scenes to the character that played Richard Cheese, Kent Butler, because he was great. So all the scenes in the clinic when he's killing all those patients by accident, those were originally written for the Queer Wolf's character. He was the one that was supposed to keep screwing up, and he was the one that accidentally kept killing patients. But because... Kent Butler, the actor who played Dick Cheese, was always professional. I saw it. I, I said, you know what? Let's just rewrite the scenes for him. And, you know, uh, the Queer Wolf character is off somewhere else. So we would cut to the scene where he's trying to cure the smoker or the alcoholic or what was the other one? The, the overeater. Um, it worked out fine. And I don't even think that Michael Palazzolo, the actor that played Queer Wolf, I don't even think he knew that we gave Kent the scenes. I don't know that because he probably never looked at the script. So that was probably the biggest chunk of change I had ever done in a movie, um, you know, where we gave, I mean, we, we really made Richard Cheese's character a lot bigger than it was because originally it was the Queer Wolf's movie. 
it was his character that had all these misfortunes and, you know, and, and with all the things that were happening in his life, he was always distracted. So he accidentally kept killing all of these therapy patients. But I thought, you know what? It works out with the other guy, too, because he just doesn't give a shit. You know what I mean? His character was just so oblivious to everything. And he'd kill a patient and then just kind of sneak out. Um, you know, so it worked OK for his character as well. But that was a, that was probably the only time. Um, and, and then, you know, then with, with uh, Deceased Won't Desist, the bit with John leaving the film, that was like another little change. But but I think Queer Wolf was the, the biggest one where I had to literally take chunks and move it over to somebody else. Now, we've been bouncing around quite a bit. And I know we had mentioned before we started recording um, with Celluloid Soul, uh, we, you know, a little bit more of a serious, but still, you know, kind of a fanciful uh, story like uh, in there. But the performance of the lead character psychiatrist and Judy Tenuta. Now, when when I first saw Polish Vampire in Burbank a year ago, okay, let's find what Mark El- what else Mark has out there. Find his social media, find his YouTube. And I saw some stuff that you had done with Judy at that time. Mm-hmm. And then by the time that we ended up watching <laughs> Celluloid Soul, I think it might have been like the week she passed. So mm-hmm. like, you know, we're kids of the 80s. You know, we remember Judy being like this huge force in the world of comedy. How did you know Judy? What was your relationship like with her? And how did you convince her to get in one of your movies? Well, um, I met her, I guess, in 2014. Uh, basically, I just I just went to her website and, you know, and I, I think I sent her an email saying, Judy loved you from years gone by. Good, you know, appreciate your comedy, whatever. And that was it. But I got a response. Thank you very much. You know, I appreciate your comments and all that. It was a personal response. So I thought, Wow. So I sent her another letter, you know, and it was another little gushing kind of letter, you know, well, you know, you, I, I, as I was a kid, I saw you many times, blah, 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 I forgot what I said. But anyway, she kept responding. Each time I would send an email, she would respond. So it got to a place where I mentioned I was a filmmaker and I love the little things that you're doing right now. And I'd love to maybe help you out with some projects. Maybe we could do some short videos or whatever. So I guess when she was convinced I wasn't psycho or a stalker, uh, we, were, we arranged to meet at a Starbucks and we were there for about two or three hours just talking and, you know, telling each other about what we've been doing our lives with whatever. Um, then I said, you know, why don't we start a like a, a YouTube channel or just do some stuff. So she had a concept called the World Accordion to Judy, which were these little three minute segments and it would be whatever, you know, nothing planned, but we would just either do something based on whatever time of year it was or if she had some crazy idea. So I would go to her house and she had a green screen room. She had a room that had a green screen. The, the wall was painted green and we would shoot a lot of them there. And we did one and then another and then another and another. And then we must have done over 50 of them, um, at least at least 50 of them. And some of them were funny. Some of them were almost funny. Some of them not so funny. But each one were, you know, would start out with her singing, it's the world, the world, according to Judy. And then we would uh, go into a bit. Uh, a lot of those are online. So after doing a bunch of these, uh, I was about ready to do my film. And she knew I was a filmmaker. And I said, uh, you know, I would love to have you in my film if you're interested in doing it. And she goes, I'd be happy to do it. I mean, I did all these videos for her, never charged her a dime for any of them, didn't need any, didn't want any money from it from her. So she was kind enough to do my film for free. Um, she shot three days 
And one day was actually we shot it at her house. The the final scene where she's doing her toenails and she's talking on the phone that was shot at her house. The other two were shot in a psychiatrist's office where Robin Blythe, who played Gloria Sternbergen, who is now a psychotherapist uh, as well as an actress, but she doesn't act as much anymore. She let us use their her office for that sequence. And we, we shot with Judy. Now, my biggest concern is that Judy is a member of the Screen Actors Guild. And I was always afraid one day I was going to get a call from Judy saying, I just got a call from SAG. Uh, they don't like what I did because I've gotten nailed by SAG before. Not me personally, but some of my actors have gotten nailed by SAG because I use SAG actors. I don't care if they're union or not, but all my movies are non-union. So at one point, SAG wanted to come down hard on the people that have been doing my movies over and over again, knowing they're non-union films. And I always thought, you know, Judy was kind of high profile and I was afraid they were going to catch her, but they never did. So we got away with that one. Anyway, um, we were going to do another film. I was actually going to direct a movie that she was going to star in. Uh, We had a script for it and everything. And then I think she backed out of it. And I think it was probably because of the cancer diagnosis. Um, the last thing we did together, I don't know if you ever saw it, we did a video of her kicking cancer's ass. The the boxing thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. A year before she died, a year after she was diagnosed, um, she wrote this song, Kicking Cancer's Ass, and she said, wouldn't it be fun to make a video about this? And I said, yeah. And I, I went to Craig Bassick, my friend who does visual effects, and I said, do you think you can make like a giant cancer creature and we'll just do this whole fun thing where she's kicking cancer's ass in the boxing ring? And uh, he did it for nothing. Uh, I did it for nothing. And we, we shot Judy in front of a green screen and, and shot that whole thing. And she, you know, you wouldn't know that anything was wrong with her. She was really spunky and had a good attitude. And she was really out to kick cancer's ass. And, and then um, I, over, as, over the months, um, you know, I'd, I'd see her every once in a while. And she, she'd be okay, but she'd be going through chemo and, you know, low and lower energy. And then the last month, I couldn't reach her. Uh, I sent her emails. I I left voicemails. I texted her. I think the last text I sent to her was like, Judy, I'm really concerned. I'm not, you know, I'm not hearing anything from you. She did respond to that one. She said, I'm really sorry. I, um, you know, I'm I'm going through a lot of therapy right now. I'm not really seeing anybody. I'm not talking to anybody. And then, um, and she died, I think like uh, maybe a week after that. And I had, I had heard from her caretaker that the last month she couldn't even really talk and she was in a wheelchair. Um, she wasn't really mobile at all. I mean, she was really circling the drain, you know? So, so I, I, my big regret was that I, you know, I didn't get to see her in her last month and I did go to her funeral and her, um, a memorial and they, they created a nice little niche for her in the Hollywood forever cemetery, which, uh, where they put her urn and a bunch of pictures from her life and her, um, you know, her, her CDs and, you know, just little items from her life. But, but yeah, that was my association with Judy right up close to the end. Right. And I'll say, I will say watching that recently, I was able to go back and watch all her YouTube stuff and comedy. And I just to see how, how truly funny she was, it, it brought it back for me. So I thought that was, you know, a great, great way to remember. So I will, I was going to say the, the the best video I think she's got out there that we did. I don't know if you saw it where she is. Uh, I'm a mountain girl. You ever see that one where she's no. singing like she's from the South. I'm a mountain girl. I like to smell feet. And anyway, she, uh, <laughs> we shot that video in 2017. 
Um, it's online. You can find it. Just right. Judy Tenuta, Mountain Girl. But I think that's the best video we ever did. I think it's so sweet and so cute. And you know, she was full of life. Right. Um, anyway. Let me ask you this. Um, if you had to pick one Mark Pirro movie to like to get the full Mark Pirro experience, which <laughs> one would you pick, recommend? Or are you going to give the answer where they're all my children and I love them equally? As, as that's, that's the pretty standard response. Um, no, I mean, every film has a different aspect to it. Like if, if we were to call them my children, Polish Vampire would be my firstborn. Um, Queer Wolf would have probably been my edgy college educated student kid, you know, Death Row Game Show, because it was my first 35 millimeter film. I would say that was the, uh, the, the first one that became an adult, you know, and, uh, Buford's Beach Bunnies, that was the one that came out a little retarded and sits in the corner and picks his nose, <laughs> you know, uh, God Complex is probably my most sophisticated one. Um, I don't think there's a specific one you can look at and say that represents me because they're all, you know, there might be a thread going through them, but I think they all have their own unique personality. Um, I used to do a thing for my mom. I would call the Marky Fun Tape Series, um, and that was something every year I would encapsulate my life, whatever happened in that year, and I would make a variety show out of it. And I would send it to her. She lived in Florida and she lived for these. It was cheaper than, you know, I mean, it was easier than, than um, writing letters or talking or calling or whatever. So I would send her these videos. That probably is the best representation because that's your seeing whatever was happening in my life. Sometimes it would be production of the movies behind the scenes. Sometimes it would be just our Thanksgiving gatherings or our dinners or whatever. Um, and I did that for over 20 years. So every year there would be a marquee fun tape that would go to her. And some of those are online, but they're hidden. You know, they're unlisted. <laughs> you, you can probably, if you go to my website, you could probably find a way to get to them under past productions. And you might, you know, each one runs like an hour and a half. And the only reason they turned into such productions, uh, because they were just home movies on steroids. But because my mom used to show them to people, I said, well, if you're going to show these to people, then I got to make them a little more entertaining. So I'd start putting in puppet shows and commercials and, you know, just uh, I mean, some of them look like Saturday Night Live. We would have variety sketches. And I mean, we really turn these into big productions. And that's probably the representation of, of me. But going to the films, no, I don't think you could point to any one film and say that's that represents uh, Pure Amount production, I think it's just, you know, whichever one you happen to catch. There's some people that like one, don't like another. You know, there's some that like them all. I mean, I'm I'm surprised that you liked them all. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's like winning the lottery, getting everybody. I mean, what I got, um, 11 movies? I mean, if you've seen them all and they're all good for you, uh, then I guess that's like winning the lottery because it's pretty tough to please everybody, you know, in all these different films. Everything was enjoyable. Everything definitely we recommend to people. And it's funny you mentioned about the Marky Fun Tapes. And you said that they're hidden around the website. I'm like, well, we trolled around the website a bunch looking for, like, bits and information and stuff. You know, whether we were doing the episodes, we were watching the movies, or getting prepared for this. I didn't even realize that they were unlisted. And I think I saw uh, on your social media that you said you're doing another one for the first time in however many years this year, right? Yeah. I am. And that's actually because the last one I did, which was 2016, it was two years after my mom had died. So I stopped the series mainly. At the end of that particular video, 
I say to everybody, okay, this is going to be the last one. I've been doing these for 20 years and we're done with it. But I won't say forever because I said, well, you know, Johnny Carson, when he left The Tonight Show, he said, I'm leaving The Tonight Show, but I might come back and do something in the future. And then he died. So I said, well, I'm going to say maybe I'll come back and do one special or whatever. So it's been seven years since we stopped the series. And I thought, okay, I've accumulated footage because I still, you know, now you can shoot with your iPhone. I used to carry a little camera with me, but now, you know, I have an iPhone. So I'll take video here and there of things. And I thought, okay, I've got seven years worth of stuff so I can condense it down, make an hour and a half show for the people that enjoyed the fun tape. I have a friend in Ireland who used to live for these. So I said, I got another one coming. And in in fact, some of it is kind of melancholy because some of it does deal with the people we've lost. We've lost, I don't know, 10 actors since uh, the last one, you know, that have died between 2016 and now. So I have a section where we have a memorial section like they do at the Academy Awards. Um, you know, like we lost Bino from Death Row Game Show. We lost uh, Conrad Brooks, who was in a bunch of my films, and Kitten Atavidad, who was in Beach Bunnies. And uh, anyway, so I I make reference to that. And then, of course, when Judy died, I had to move her to, over to the uh, tribute section too. But um, but yeah, so we're, we've got we've got one coming out for 2023, which is going to be like the old show with just a bunch of crazy stuff and and some sad stuff and. We got a couple of locations that we go visit. I used to do that on some of my tapes where I would go to famous locations and point out where they shot Psycho or whatever, Halloween, any of those things. Uh, so we got a couple of those in there as well. And, you know, a couple of sketches. And, you know, we'll, it'll be publicized when it uh, does come out, but it will probably be hidden, too. So you'll have to stay on top of social media to keep an eye on that. So other than the next Marky Fun Tape, what else do you have on your slate? What is coming up next from Mark Fierro? You know what? Right now, I'm sort of considering myself semi-retired. Oh. Uh, I think um, I've kind of gotten to a place where, you know, and I, I say, well, you know, look, I'm a senior citizen now. You know, I should be collecting Social Security. So this is, this is a, a young man's game. And the things that we did when we were kids, I mean, we were fearless. I had a guy hanging from a helicopter in Nudist Colony of the Dead without a permit. You know, um, I wouldn't want to try that today. And today, if somebody caught me doing that, they'd say, you should know better. You're an older guy. You know, when you're in your 20s, they'll oh, he's just a kid. He's dumb. You know, but so we did a lot of dumb things that we got away with. Nobody's ever gotten killed or hurt on any of my films. And I think I've probably been pushing the envelope too far, you know, without having any kind of insurance. If anybody had gotten hurt on any of my films, that could have wiped me out. So my attitude now is I'm kind of done. Um, I may do I I might be a, a, a hired gun, like if somebody else is producing a movie and they want me to to run the set or to be a consultant or to even yell action and cut. Okay, possibly. But. To, to put the whole show together and the whole shebang and get everybody together again. I don't know if I have what it takes anymore. You know, I think that I think Tarantino once said even a prize fighter at some point needs to know when it's time to get out of the ring because um, there are some filmmakers that overstay their welcome. I think he might have used Blake Edwards as an example, who, who was very funny in his earlier days. But the last several films were just almost like. Time to stop. I think Woody Allen might even be another example. I mean, he's still got a couple of them, but I've seen uh, like his last 
few films and it's almost like okay you're just phoning it in now so uh anyway that's kind of where i think i'm at at the moment now this could change i mean i could get a burst of inspiration and and as i'm playing shuffleboard finally decide that i want to try and make another movie you know i i I hate to never say never but um but as for right now kind of considering myself retired well, uh, again, it's, it's sad to hear that there won't be at least something definitively coming in the near future. But whenever something does come, Todd and I, of course, will be certainly ready for it and uh, want to push that out there. So where can our listeners find more information about you? Where's the best way to keep up on Mark Pirro, support Mark Pirro? And listen, I'll make no bones about it. What's the best way that they could put money in your pocket? <laughs> Buy a Mr. Jesus head. There you go. That's, you know, that's the one thing I did merchandising on. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah. But when we did the God Complex, the movie ends with God and Jesus working in a toy manufacturing facility. And we created the submissive Jesus prayer answering talking head for that scene. And then at that time, I thought, you know what? Let's try and really market this. So we made 2,500 of these talking Jesus heads. And what they do is you pray to it. Then you twist the crown of thorns on his head and the pain makes him shriek. And then he will answer your prayer with a hundred random phrases. He'll say a hundred different things. And we sold about 960 of them, I think, out of 2,500. So I still have a few left. Um, but, yeah, that's that's uh, that's a great way to do it. Um, and that you can go to thesubmissivejesus.com and you can get one there. You can also go to my website, which is Mountain. Dot com. Uh, that's where all of our movies are available on DVD. Um, we sell props. I, I, I have some people that have bought props from the movies, like somebody bought the medallion from Curse of the Queer Wolf with John Wayne's picture on it to protect you from the power of the Queer Wolf. Um, somebody bought that. You know, they paid five hundred bucks for it. <laughs> you know, I mean, and we've got a lot of other items that are from the movies that you know are just sitting in the archives. So. So, yeah, Paramount.com or the submissivejesus.com is where you can find all kinds of stuff. I, I have a Facebook page as well. Who doesn't, right? Um, and what else do we have? I think that's about it. I'm not a Twitter guy. In fact, I, I dumped all my Twitter when uh, when they gave Trump his opportunity to come back. I said, I, I don't want to be part of this one anymore. So, uh, so I don't have a Twitter account. Um, and what's left? If you want to stalk me, I live in Van Nuys behind a gate. Um, all right. You know, no, I, I basically I think that's everything. I can't think of any other way. You know, I, I do I sell my ass on Hollywood and Vine every once in a while. It uh, doesn't really net very much. So that's well, well yeah. Mr. Piero. Again, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule for coming on the podcast with us. Uh, believe you, uh, I could. You know, Mark was nice enough to have his camera on. Todd and I. Never ever a camera's on, but the whole time I've had a big giant smile on my face talking about your movies. And uh, like I said, know that there's always an audience out there. And if we could do like a little tiny bit to get your name out there, to get your films out in the eyes of other people, then, you know, we're going to be torchbearers for you until the day that we're no longer able to move ourselves. Well, that's great. So people actually like, they'll sit here for the whole two hours and listen to this whole thing? Yes. Wow. I hope. No, yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. In bits, they might take it on the road with them. Maybe share it with their kids. I'm gonna make my kid listen to this when he wakes up tomorrow before school. Oh, good, good. He'll need a lot of therapy when he gets older. 
<laughs> that's that's what we're hoping to avoid. This will just like do the opposite of everything that we're talking about here. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one question before you go, if I may, and that's how did you discover me in the first place? Was it from USA Network or how did that come? Um, about? It was from. I taught. This is Todd. Yeah, it was from me. Whenever. I think I have a Mandela effect now of how I saw a Polish vampire in Burbank. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was USA up all night, but that, that didn't start until I was in my like late teens, like 18 or 19, but I saw it earlier. So you saying that it was one of the first out on video. Um, we had, we were one of the families around here that had the first VHS players. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing I might've gotten it from my local video store, you know, when it was run out of a house, like <laughs> two blocks from me, I'd walk, I'd go get a seat. So whether it was USA or it was me renting the video and then me and my brother like fell in love with that and mm-hmm. then like pushing it on other people when I would see it on TV. And then this, like showing it to Joe made us go like, we have to go back and watch everything. You know what I mean? I did see some here or there, but I didn't remember it. If that makes any sense. So that's how I found you. And, and I will say, I never knew it was you, but I definitely saw death row game show at the local video store. I definitely saw Buford's Beach Bunny at the video store. I'm mm-hmm. almost certain that my mom is a werewolf played on HBO like daytime during the week a bunch. Mm-hmm. And Curse of the Queer Wolf, you mentioned it before, the bit with the John Wayne medallion. When I saw that, and I'm like, I've seen that before. So I definitely saw your movies, you know, here and there when I was younger, but I never put them together to you. When And again, you know, when you're a kid, you're eight, nine, ten years old watching these movies, you're not really paying attention to who the writer and who the director is. When you get a little bit older, those pieces start to come together. And obviously now in our 40s, whatever it is, you know, with mm-hmm. the access of the Internet, we just consume. You find one piece of media and you want the rest of whoever made that media. Got it. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad that it worked out for you and that you haven't turned into serial killers or anything like that. Uh, the night's yet. not over yet. Yeah, so. that's not true. Yet. Yeah, you can still snap. There's still time. Yes. Again, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Piero, for spending hey. some time with us. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. We'll uh, see you guys here next month. Adios. <laughs>